This is the Monday, October 24th, 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. December 7th, 1941. A date which will live in infamy. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. My fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. It is a crisis of confidence. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, with an eye on the upcoming U.S. presidential election, our time machine travels back to the childhood of the 43 men who've served in the Oval Office. Which, that's right, means changing Grover Cleveland's diaper on two non-consecutive occasions. Our focus is not just on the men, but on the parents who raised them and influenced their lives. It's always great to find an untouched area of historic significance. There have been so many great authors writing about First Ladies, including Feather S. Foster, who you heard share her book, Mary Lincoln's Flannel Pajamas, and other stories from the First Lady's Closet. Yet search as you may, it will be in vain to find a book about the mothers and fathers of our presidents all together. This week's guest fills that space on our bookshelves. He is veteran political writer and historian Dr. Harold I. Gullen, and his book is Cradles of Power, The Mothers and Fathers of the American Presidents. After a career in advertising, Dr. Gullen earned a master's degree in education from St. Joseph's University and a Ph.D. in history from Temple. He has previously touched on the subject of molding young minds into the chief executives of the United States in his books, First Fathers, The Men Who Inspired Our Presidents, as well as Faith of Our Mothers, and with an eye on the election, you might also want to check out his title, The Upset That Wasn't, Harry S. Truman and the Crucial Election of 1948. Okay, now that we've loaded up on school supplies for these kids with big futures ahead of them, let's visit the houses before the White House and peer into the cradles of power.
I'm joined on the line by Dr. Harold I. Gullen, author of Cradles of Power, The Mothers and Fathers of the American Presidents. Thank you for making time to talk with the History Author Show. Well, I'm more than happy to do so. When I was giving you my background and going back and forth, I mentioned that I love the presidents. I read a biography of each one in order some years ago, and wow. this is be- this is before Kindle or anything, so I had to carry around those thick. You know, you're very familiar with them, I'm sure. James Madison, you get a big thick one there, and the absolutely in- <laughs> index alone is as thick as some books on, say, a James K. Polk. I enjoy it. I mean, you learn so much about people and about history by reading them. There are many of those biographies, but Almost none on your topic, presidential mothers and fathers. And I wondered if this was a classic case of not finding a book you wanted to read at the library or the bookstore, so you went and wrote it yourself. Well, I tend to like in my illustrious career <laughs> subjects that I feel have been neglected, and I'm not quite sure why they've been neglected. There's a lot of literature, so I don't tell you about presidents and the lives of the presidents, especially the first ladies. And I never understood why there were virtually no books about the parents of our presidents, who, after all, were initially their their inspiration, and who are in themselves, I found extraordinarily interesting. As I say, this is a voyage of discovery for the author, as well as the reader, because I only know about a few of these guys. And they're fascinating. And some of them, as I say, very interesting in themselves. They weren't all inspirational, but I think they were almost all rather interesting people. And so I determined to do this in a sort of non-academic way. You know, these are this is a series of stories, and they're not terribly long stories. It's popular history, hopefully. But as you indicated, we know a lot more about some of these presidential families than others. Early on, some of the presidents felt that when they wrote their, their memoirs, what their early life was like was just nobody else's business. Yeah, there was burning of letters of Jefferson with his mother, and they just didn't think that their early life was important. And it's so frustrating to us today because it's such a natural. We want to know James Monroe, if you're going to go write a biography of him, you want to know about his mother. And oftentimes you just put a blank there, uh, basically. You knew a little bit about them, but it must have been very tantalizing for you as that researcher. And I wonder how you knew the moment it had come to just sort of move on. You just weren't going to find anything special. Well, I'm as old-fashioned as you are and probably much older. And what I did, in effect, it sounds impressive, is I ensconced myself in a library of a local university where the librarian is terribly congenial, and I simply read every biography of every president I could lay my hands on. It sounds more impressive than it is because I could discern what part of that biography would be really relevant. But it still involves several hundred books over a long period of time, but it, but it was so much fun. Yep. You know, when you talk about Jefferson's a special case, of course, he he burned the letters to his wife, his mother, his whole view of women is, is worth writing a book about, but each one is interesting, even those about whom we don't know a great deal. But I determined I had to write about them all. I had to write, a, I found that, you know, Eliza Garfield, who never heard of Eliza Garfield? She was a woman of enormous character and had tremendous influence on her son, and these are people I knew very, very little about. Eliza Garfield, if folks have gone to the Garfield home in Mentor, Ohio, you can see her room in the house. And when you consider that, of course, her son was married and had a wife of his own, Lucretia Garfield, called her Crete. Imagine having your mother-in-law living with you and then staying with you after your husband's been slain. So she's a fascinating one. I spoke to Candace Millard recently about her new book, Cure of the Empire. She had written Destiny of the Republic before that about Garfield. 
I find, as I'm sure you do, having read all those bios, these people become like friends. You look at them and you want to introduce readers to them. They're more than just, okay, one line in the history book. For instance, Mother McKinley. I'm a big admirer of William <laughs> McKinley. She's a fun character. I mean, you Wonderful. read these... They read these little bits that you talk about each person. And I certainly did this on the bus. I had my commute all scrambled because of that Hoboken train crash. And I was able to just pick this up, read a little bit at a time as I was trying to work things out. And then some of the longer ones, I'd get lost and look up and say, where's this bus taking me? And so it's that kind of book, really. You can pick it up, put it down, and get a feel for somebody like Mother McKinley, who I want you to give a little bit of background here, because I'm sure most people just haven't heard about her. Do you want to ghostwrite my next book? <laughs> well, we'll talk, certainly. <laughs> I warn you, when I'm talking about somebody like Mother McKinley, who was, as you know, popularly known as that, before we had, you know, this big mass, mass media, well, the whole country viewed her as a kind of personification of small-town vanities, as the country was kind of changing. And they adopted her, and she was literally a favorite of people all over the country. And, you know, I'm often asked, what profession did the mothers and the fathers in their presence most favor? And the fathers, it was law, obviously, but the mothers, actually, it was the ministry. And Mother McKinley's great hope for her son, I mean, she would have been a minister herself had it been possible. <laughs> the great hope for her son is that one day he'd be a Methodist bishop until, unfortunately, he was elected president. Step down. And when she was asked, aren't you proud of your son? You recall that she said... I'm happy for him for his sake. It was very hard giving up her goal, but that was basically, you see, so many of these mothers, especially early on, are so profoundly religious, and, you know, they want their sons to be, their first sons to be ministers. But it's rather surprising because, you know, John F. Kennedy once said that every American mother wants her son to be president, but she doesn't want him in politics. <laughs> okay. Well, no American mother wants her son to be president, and certainly not in politics. And it's rather interesting to find that that's the case. And only one American father, first father, wanted his son to be president. And that, of course, was Joseph P. Kennedy. But his first choice, you know, had been himself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jack was his third choice, as it yeah. turned out. We could talk for an hour just about that. But I think in looking at all these mothers, the only one who may have actually hoped when she was quite elderly that her son be president was Abigail Adams. She wanted him to come back from Europe because the country needs you. And, and your parents joined in that plea, except that her husband, John Adams, who had been president, no way he, joined, he didn't want his son to come back and be president. He wanted him to join him in a law firm so that the family could finally make some money. Yeah, cash in already. Yeah, <laughs> or do something. But just very quickly, when you, when you think about Garfield and McKinley, I've been trying to remember the name of a book that just came out recently about all the assassination attempts in this country, which, after all, has rather a violent history, and how few succeeded. Isn't it really astonishing that of all of these attempts, that only four of our presidents have been assassinated, and three of their mothers outlived them, including Lincoln's stepmother, of course, of course, is a wonderful woman. Is she the one who told him, or is that his uh, birth mother, Lauren All You Can, Abe? The birth mother. Nancy. Okay. She died when he was only nine. Yeah. And she said, learn all you can, learn all you can. Now, she could actually read. She encouraged him you know, to read any book he could get his hands on. But she died when he was only nine. It was about two years before his father brought back Sarah Bush Lincoln, who lived with the rest of his life. In fact, she died four years 
after he did in their last emotional meeting when he was on his way to Washington. She said, I have this terrible feeling, you know, you're going to die violently. And he said, just think of your faith, you know, and there wasn't much more he could say. And of course, he did die about four years later, and then she died about four years after that. It's something that the fathers, you talk about none of them wanting their sons to go into politics. Then when you look a step further, you say the presidents that had children, they often have very rough lives. They have a mixed bag of success. You had John Quincy Adams, who does reach the presidency, but he's not a wild success. And when I looked at George W. Bush winning the second term, not only was he the first president to come into office with losing the popular vote to win re-election, but he's arguably the only child of a president that you could say in that field outshined his father because his father, of course, served only one term. And you look at that, trying to transition, trying to imbue your child with this success and get them to be president, it very rarely works. It's, it seems when you read all those bios, you kind of see those patterns that there's no path for it. Al Gore, they, his father was also Al Gore, but That's right. pushing him to be pushing him to be president, and they said, "Well, we raised him for it." And those guys can fall short, you know. And then you can have the Kennedys that have tragedies, and you can have people you want to be president. FDR's son, TR's son, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. was a, a great soldier and a great guy. Unfortunately, passes away just after D-Day. It's really a hard road. And then you have a guy like Millard Fillmore or Andrew Johnson, who are just kind of the right place at the right time. We've got to write a book together. I mean, let's let's get off the phone now. And just... well, thank you. I'm honored. You, you know more about this than anybody I've ever talked to, and I talk at great length. Uh, it's astonishing. But well, I pride myself on but, that. You know, so I actually read the book, I which I was, you, I was. Apparently, you do. Uh, I, I guess now that everything's broken down in Hoboken, you have more time. But uh, <laughs> I, I think there are some books about presidential siblings and the various you know, generations. To my way of thinking, for example, if you really go into this, I think the most impressive of all the Bushes was Prescott. Hmm. Are you familiar with him? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> then I won't give you a monologue on Prescott. No, please, for the listeners, go I ahead. Because it is, it's, he is kind of forgotten. I think the only thing people unfortunately know about him are kind of some urban legends about his business dealings. And so I don't think people really know him just for who he is. And that's the great thing I think here about Cradles of Power is you look into these people as more than just a line. You know, it's yeah. easy to just say, okay, this president's father was a drunkard. This president's father was abusive. This one left the family. This one died. But your book really does look into somebody like Prescott Bush, who maybe you just know he was a senator and that's it. So I, I love that part of it. The great temptation is to know, you know, you have to know when to stop. This book could readily be a thousand pages, though. I don't think any publisher would be agreeable to that. But, you know, Prescott got into the Senate too late. He got into politics too late. Uh, he was Eisenhower, I think Eisenhower's favorite senator. And, in fact, Lyndon Johnson said to his son, George, that his father was his favorite senator. But he was a man of such rectitude, almost a little bit grim. His children and grandchildren were almost a little afraid of him before they realized what great character he had. But, I mean, in one instance, I recall that he took his wife out of a party because their host told an off-color joke. And uh, he, he cut off his support for Norman Rockefeller because of what a messy divorce he had. He was a man of immense rectitude, and, they, and the powers that be sort of hoped, because they could see him as a potential president, sort of hoped that he would loosen up a little bit. Well, he was a whiffing poof, so I guess he sang during his campaigns. But I think essentially, he might have been a very good president. He was a moderate Republican, profoundly similar to uh, Eisenhower, 
It's rather a tragedy, I think. Although, of course, as you know, the son of George H.W., who was supposed to be the political light of the country, was Jeb. Not going to be George, it was really Jeb. And it's kind of strange and unusual how, how young George got into politics at all, mainly involved in supporting his father and becoming sort of like the Bobby Kennedy to George H.W.'s campaign, but you, you know all that. But this is an interesting family. Jeb has a son who's, I think, part Mexican, my wife chimed in, she's yeah. part of this too, uh, who could be a potential candidate because he has all the qualities that you would want. The thing to do, I think, is sort of to run the other way. And I read also in many of those bios, and you revisit these things in Cradles of Power, talking about how none of these parents, with a couple of exceptions, wanted their children anywhere near politics, much less the White House. Lincoln said it. Once you get that grub in your head, that presidential grub, you just use for nothing. And Did he really say that? <laughs> Yeah. I'll take your word on that. Theodore Roosevelt said, too, when he's the even just the police commissioner, which isn't as impressive as it sounds at that point, somebody said to him, you could carry this to the White House. And he slams his fist down in typical TR fashion and says, I never want anybody to mention that to me again, because once a man starts thinking that way. And I, I think if you could give maybe advice to somebody like George P. Bush or you know, John F. Kennedy Jr., who was, maybe had an eye on politics later, mm-hmm. maybe you want to go the route of Millard Fillmore's son and just stay away from it completely, or Robert Lincoln, who just wanted to stay away. There's another heck of a character in history. If you try to chase it, it's just one of those things. It's really hard to get there. And when you look at the parents, it's one of the things I like to say about this show when I go and interview, say, somebody who owns an old tavern or, say, a battlefield. I did Paoli Battlefield from the Revolutionary War is we're all writing history. So we're all history authors, even though we don't know it. And when I say that, I don't usually say to people, but in my head, I think of James Garfield's parents because here's his father who dies, doesn't raise him. He's so poor. And there's always people when he's on the canal boats, there's somebody who's going to impress you maybe in a way that you'll never know. I mean, you could save a life without knowing it. And it turns out that person grows and becomes a president. And In Cradles of Power, you talk about that kind of thing, but also how over history, our eyes change on some of the presidents we do know about. And one of those is Mary Washington. She has a college named after her. Her home is preserved better than some of our president's homes, which have just been lost. There's an obelisk memorializing her. But history's view of the first first mother has changed over the life of our nation. So I wondered if you'd talk a little bit about her. Well, I... (laughs) She's perplexed historians for some time. You realize that towards the end of her life, she was criticizing her son for not supporting her properly, so publicly that the Virginia House of Burgesses was going to give her some money. I, mean, yeah, I don't think we'll ever come to a resolution of exactly what she was what she was like. You know, just as Abraham Lincoln never got along with his father for obvious reasons, George Washington never got along with his mother because she wanted a completely different life for him. When his father died and had not made, you know, accommodations for him to go to college and to go abroad like his stepbrothers, she wanted him to come home as the 11-year-old, as the oldest boy, to sort of take charge of things under her care. Their whole lives really were a struggle for who was going to, whose will was going to survive. And obviously, ultimately, he uh, he did. He just did. He just didn't really. When you think of all the letters he wrote, he was, you know, such a consistent letter writer. He wrote very few letters to her, and they were basically about, well, maybe you should at this stage 
uh, move in with one of your children. Mm-hmm. Now, not me, <laughs> you know, because my house is like a tavern. You were talking about taverns. You wouldn't be happy here, <laughs> but we have to make some kind of accommodation. They were kind of pulling and tugging at each other their whole lives. Yet at the end, he was handling her, her estate. But it's fairly clear that he simply wanted a very different life. From the time his father died, he almost separated himself physically because the neighbors were so much more interesting. But we don't really know what to make of her. Do you? Do you? I, I mean, what kind of conclusion do you reach? Yeah. She has to be memorialized because of her position in history, but they were never close. And it's something that people record her so differently. I like that. I like looking at the presidents. Sometimes somebody will ask me and say, why did they write something like arsenic on old lace to go back to yeah. TR and say they, they cast him as such a buffoon? And I said, well, you know, he kind of took a dip there for a while and presidents fall in and out of favors. I went to the Adams National Historic Site up in Quincy and the ranger there said, anybody who told you before the David McCullough book that Adams was their favorite president was lying. He said, I came from the, he'd gotten this job from the JFK library. And he said, I can tell you that the JFK got a lot of traffic and there was nobody here until that book came out. And so I hope I'm not getting him in trouble by saying it, but it's a positive. Well, not, not with me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I'm asked even, even now so frequently, uh, more frequently than anything else about the book, who are your favorite first parents? And, uh, you know, it's, it's different categories. You know, Eliza Garfield is way up there in terms of character. But I would say, if you talk about different kind of categories, I would say probably the most impressive of all the first fathers, because of simply what they were like and what they contributed in their lives, was the father of Theodore Roosevelt. He was the most impressive man. He contributed his whole life to founding and funding virtually every worthwhile charity and hospital and museum. Everything that made New York the melting pot of the nation and would be the symbol for the world. He was the first citizen of New York, never wanted to run for office, always avoided publicity. His son said he was the best man I ever knew, and he was the view that was held by a great many other people, and yet he died tragically before he was 50, and his wife died before she was 50 on the very same day, as you probably know, in the very same house as Theodore Roosevelt Jr.'s first wife who died the same day, in the same place, and Thea's brother ran out yelling, this house is haunted. So there was a lot of tragedy there. But I think of him as, overall, if you can make gradations, I think of Theodore Roosevelt, Thea, they called him Thea, and they called his son Teddy, not Teddy, as you probably know. I think of him as the most impressive of all the First Fathers when you consider character and, and achievement. And I think the most impressive of the First Mothers because you could hardly get away from it, was probably Elizabeth Jackson. You know, as I'm sure you do, that she literally saved her son's life. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Elizabeth Hutchinson Jackson. Yeah. She, I mean, she, unlettered, widowed, on her own, three sons, and trying somehow to keep them out of the Revolutionary War, which, as you know, in that area was more like a civil war. It was... Neighbor against neighbor, friend against friend, home against home. And North Carolina? You said North that area? Carolina, well, the, the Waxhaws, actually, where they were located okay. was on what is now the juncture of North and South Carolina. In fact, they still argue over the birthplace. <laughs> they both think they have it, by the way, everybody. Well, you know <laughs> that when he was captured, he had saber slash. He was only 15 years old. He really shouldn't have been in the militia at all. But at the same time, couldn't be prevented. People didn't care much about age. He was a wonderful horseman and the rest. 
he was dragged away with his other brother. The oldest brother had already died to this terrible fetid prison camp 40 miles from the Waxhaws. And she kept her head, as, as you know. She organized a, a, a means of a prisoner exchange. <laughs> and it was approved by the local uh, you know, militia commander. He had a few British prisoners. And she went with two horses all the way down to this place. And somehow she must have captured the attention. She made a favorable impression on the British commander because he approved the prisoner exchange. And she, <laughs> she took her two sons and their friends all the way back that 40 miles. And by the time she got home, the other son was more dead than alive, and he didn't survive. But she willed, she willed Andrew to survive, and ultimately he was out of danger, and then she left him because she had to, after a few well-chosen words of advice, if he'd be on his own, because she had to do what she could to save the sons of her neighbors who were being held by the British off the coast of Carolina. And I don't think she got very far. She caught something called ship's fever and died, and she's buried on a hillside on Mark Grave. It wasn't until he was president that Andrew Jackson was able to put a statue in the cemetery at the Presbyterian Church next to her two other sons. And he memorialized her as simply a, an extraordinarily wonderful woman. What do you say? Brave as a lioness. That's the word I try. Brave as a lioness. To me, that I mean, that's heroism on a scale that nobody else reaches. And just very quickly, there are so many otherwise very bright first parents who were very, very involved in their sons and who felt that they would do everything they could and their sons were simply expected to excel. But it wound up being excessive pressure, like Alfonso and Louise Taft. I think they're exceptional people, but they put so much pressure on William Howard that it may have resulted in his immense bulk. But yeah, you said Taft couldn't stop eating and Wilson didn't <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Is that what but, you said, I think? <laughs> Cradles of power. But one other first father who, who appeals to me in this sense is the, the father of Calvin Coolidge, John Coolidge, who, without any complaint, supported his son into his mid-30s and never put any pressure on him off. He knew he'd be all right. But he had the sense to understand his son well enough, and his son viewed him as the most you know, the most outstanding person he'd ever known. In fact, he changed his own name. A number, you know, a number of these presidents changed their own names because he didn't want to be John Calvin Coolidge. He said John Coolidge was so superior to him in every way that he dropped that name and he viewed his father, you know, as the greatest man who ever lived, in the same way that young Theodore Roosevelt viewed his father as the best man I ever know. Remember, he wrote that letter the first year he was at Harvard and said, I don't think there's another person here whose father is also their best friend, as you are mine. So I say, these are a couple that just stick out to me that I knew nothing. I knew nothing about John Coolidge. I knew really next to nothing about the Garfields. So I learned a lot through writing this book, and I almost want to start reading it all over again because I may have, mi <laughs> may have missed somebody. That's a great sign. And you talked there about a lioness. And Theodore Roosevelt, of course, called a lion, hunted lions. His father, the kids called Great Heart, which gives you an idea of the esteem that they held him in. And people, rich and poor alike, are outside that brownstone where his son comes out and says, there's a curse on this house when TR arrives. And it's 
just somebody who was so loved and yet they're forgotten, if not for their sons and if not for a book like Cradles of Power, where you say, well, where did TR get this? Where did he get this idea that he's going to make his body, as he puts it? He's a little kid there and this great lion of a figure, Greatheart, your father, who you revere as a, almost a knight. He would ride a carriage uh, three in hand. They would say he could ride it with one handed by himself. Usually you would have two coachmen. So he's just really impressive and he sees his son is weak and he's getting picked on and this kind of thing. And he puts a gymnasium in the top of that house that's now recreated down in Manhattan. And, you know, he looks up at him and he says, or he looks down at him, he looks at his son and he says, you have the mind, but you don't have the body. And he says, I will make my body. And he goes and does it. And that is the guy that we know that we still look up to, that we still read about in fiction and still is selling great books like Candace Millard's book and that people love. That comes from a father and he plays this huge role. He's named after him, which reminds me that many of these mothers you write in Cradles of Power played an outsized role in raising their sons. Yes. And that's right. shown in something you noticed by reading all these bios, namely that many of them have their mother's maiden names as their middle names. It is true. You know, it's funny when you think about the parents of Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy, not Teddy, uh, his father was Dee. They are two extraordinarily attractive people. His mother was a quintessential Southern belle. There's a great love story between the two of them from such different backgrounds, but that they came together. They must have wondered at some time, they had, I believe, four children. They must have wondered at some time how two such handsome people, you know, could have such homely children. I never thought that. <laughs> and they were all homely. And how two such healthy people, vigorous people, could have all four of the children were lighted in some way physically. I think that the problem with the first child, that curvature of the spine, yeah. really led her father to found a particular hospital for that affliction. Every time he ran into affliction, he started a hospital. When he would walk down the street with his friends, some of whom were more affluent than he, the first thing they would ask is, well, how much this time, Theodore? <laughs> he was an extraordinary man. I, I would like to see a book just about him, but whatever. You still have time. Well, Lord willing. <laughs> <laughs> By, they called her, the daughter with the twisted spine, because even though she had this disability, she was yeah. always on the move, which reminds you so much of TR. Yeah. And they would say, hi, bye, because she was always going somewhere. I did, just love those little things you get from a character like that. I call them characters, but they're, they're just larger than life. And I never thought of that before. If listeners have a minute, go Google Theodore Roosevelt's father and see his, and Google his mother, who's, as you said, was this quintessential Southern belle. Her house, I believe, was the one that they based the Gone with the Wind house on from down south. I didn't know that. I believe so. She has some connection to that, the Bullocks. That yeah, was her maiden, right. maiden name, as you know. So, Maybe. yeah, they, they have a connection, the Bullocks, to the Gone with the Wind story. Can I interview you? I mean, I have these great, <laughs> now, it's true, I have been sick, and it's only fair. I have these great gaps. You're fascinating to listen to. Oh, well, thank you. Hopefully other people feel that way. Okay. <laughs> listening. My guest is Dr. Harold I. Gullen, author of Cradles of Power, The Mothers and Fathers of the American Presidents. Stephen Spignessi, author of a few books on our presidents, calls Cradles of Power, quote, a fascinating, erudite, and invaluable history of the folks from whom 43 of America's most important people sprung. The book is a must-buy for anyone interested in who has led America and how these iconic figures became the president, unquote. I want to pick up on that idea of understanding our presidents through their relationships with their parents. 
as we opened the show saying, it's a relatively modern concept. And when we get to our early presidents, there's very little to know about. So for some of those early figures that are almost just a sketch, in fact, some of them, you're lucky just to have a sketch drawing of them. If you could go back and find one that was just frustrating because there was so little written. Bear in mind, there are a lot of these people who died young. If you look at Herbert Hoover's parents, I think they both died when Herbert Hoover was too young to really know either of them. Hmm. They would probably be in that category. There are some who are simply not very impressive, and yet they made a contribution of their own. It's interesting that when you think about Ulysses S. Grant, he didn't want to go to West Point. His father had to insist on it. Yeah. <laughs> and suppose he had insisted on it, you know, and yet they weren't close. He was so close to his mother, but it was a communion of silence. You're amazed when you read his letters to her. They're so emotional from West Point. It doesn't seem like the person at all. But I would say that if you think of our lesser known presidents by and large, it's their parents. You know, I didn't know much about the Garfields or the Van Durens. And uh, if you go back further, I would say I talk about the missing mothers of Virginia. Maybe that's the answer. That once you get past Jefferson, who destroys all his letters to his wife and his mother. If you go to Monroe and Madison, they wrote next to nothing about their parents. And so we know next to nothing about their parents and we just surmise. And I think probably those presidents who wrote so little and thought so little about their families, I would say they would be in that category. Then, of course, you get to Adams where Abigail made sure there were no missing mothers of Massachusetts. Well, she liked to write things down, and thank God that she did. Well, we're very fortunate that half of their lives were spent apart. Yeah, true. John Quincy, too. John Quincy's not the most likable guy, but most certainly impressive. And that's, thankfully, they like to write. And thankfully, that was retained. We've got a lot of literature, you know, that's been destroyed. That's a tragedy. But that we have that vital literature is just terribly fortunate. But it's a shame that we don't have more about some of our other presidents who didn't think that their personal lives mattered all that much. You'd love reading the Adams' letters back and forth. And then I know when I was reading before the popular John Adams bio by David McCullough, I was reading it and he throws a bag of letters over the side to Abigail because he thinks that the British are coming and are going to board the ship. And it's not the British, it turns out. And I always thought, gosh, I mean, I know that they're they're gone. They're in the ocean, right? <laughs> but I just always felt like, God, what was in there? As if we don't have enough letters from them. But everyone carried so much. Abigail, probably the most well-known presidential mother, because she's also a first lady herself, you write in Cradles of Power that there's one of these threads through presidential fathers. You just mentioned Ulysses S. Grant, and if he hadn't pushed his son to go to West Point, told him you're enrolled. By the same token, again, great heart, Theodore Roosevelt, the elder, not going to the fight in the Civil War, spurred his son to go fight when his chance came in Cuba, so we might not know him either. So it's not always what you think the example will be, but that still had an impression. That's a very a very good point. I, as, you, as you know, the one regret that T. Roosevelt had in his life was that he didn't serve in the forces of the Union. But at the time, he didn't feel that he could bring himself to take up arms against his wife's family. But he regretted it the rest of his life. Now, I've never read anything about T.D. saying that he felt that was a lapse. I don't think he would ever write about his father in that context. But, of course, it's quite a contrast. And from then on, of course, there are more than a little warlike. But I know he regretted that, and her family was very active in the Confederacy, so much so, I think, during the Navy, that uh, when they were 
given you know pardons after the end of the war. They were they were exempted. Her, I think her brothers uh, both moved to England. Yeah, they stayed. And one there. died in the. Isn't that yeah. right? And one died and has a headstone that says uh, "Southern by birth, English by choice." And yeah, no other choice. And in fact, <laughs> in fact, they they fascinated young Theodore, and he loved interviewing them and talking to them, and they were a great inspiration to him. I guess he got over to see them in Europe. I think you know if you take a single family, in terms of just fascination with everybody, it would probably be the, the Roosevelts. And the contrast between two branches of the family and the rest, I think that Franklin's, you talk about children, I think that there was an average of like four marriages for every child of Franklin Roosevelt. It's a shame because some of these talented people, but none of them ever really went very far. And of course, the death of Quentin Roosevelt just pretty much destroyed his father, I think even his will to live. But the end of Theodore Roosevelt's life is very tragic, and you could write a good book about that, how he happened to uh, run into people he had really been away from and resurrected their friendship just before the end, like William Howard Taft. I think he just ran into him at a restaurant and was so pleased because, you know, Taft's whole life had been pleasing other people. Hmm. He, had to, he had to please his parents, he pleased his best friend, Theodore Roosevelt, he pleased his very ambitious wife. And he hated being president. He had the judicial temperament. He loved being chief justice. And ultimately, at least he got that chance. But it's interesting, you know, after they leave office, what happens to them and their interactions and the rest, it might make an interesting book for you to consider. The thing about Ulysses S. Grant's father that made me think of the next question is, you write that many of them were thwarted in their own ambitions, and not only were they a little frustrated in not being able to have, say, the biggest shoe store in the state of Illinois outside Chicago, which is one of them. You'll have to read the book to find out which one. But they're also perplexed by their sons. They don't understand. There's not that connection. And it's a little heartbreaking when you can't explain to your father what you want to do and when you can't explain to your son on the other side. So describe that thread that goes through some of these families. Who are these fathers who have their ambitions thwarted, who never can do what they want to do. That's a very interesting point. And Chris, I, I think a lot about Reagan. Reagan, even Nancy Reagan said that sometimes he holds a little of himself back, even from me. Uh, but that was the pivotal point of his life, of course, when he found his father dead drunk on the front steps and decided that he wasn't going to leave it to his mother anymore. He was going to somehow drag him in himself. And that was kind of a turning point in his life. And yet these people are complex. He later talked about his father as not only the best storyteller he'd ever known, which had an influence, but the best man of real of integrity and a man who hated bigotry. For example, when he was so, he wanted to have, as you say, wanted to have the, the largest shoe store in the state of Illinois outside of Chicago. It doesn't seem so incredible an ambition, but it took him from place to place to place to place. Ultimately, he wound up on the road one time in the middle of the winter when he was uh, headed 200 miles away to a shoe store. He stopped at the only hotel in town, and the guy said, oh, you'll be happy here, Mr. Reagan. We don't have any Jews here. And he was so offended by that, he went to his car, spent the night there, and, and you know, and nearly got pneumonia. So these are not simple people. They're complicated people. I, I think that in many cases, the son's ambition doesn't necessarily come from the father. It's just there. It's kind of 
how do you figure it? I mean, not all of these sons were first sons or only sons. Many of them were not. And in the case of like Nixon, who's not a first son, second son, he's trying to make up to his parents the loss that they had of their other, you know, other sons, the two other sons. He's trying to be three sons in one and excel in every conceivable way. And they can see what he's trying to do, but it's almost excessive. But, you know, if you think, I really never looked at it this way, you take a look at the fathers, and all of them are ambitious, without exception, I think. Even uh, Abraham Lincoln's father, what was, what was ambition to him? What was success to him? What is a better farm? You know, right over the horizon. Maybe it's not in Kentucky. Maybe it's in Indiana. Maybe it's in Illinois. I'll find it. It'll have better water. It'll have a clearer land title. Better everything. And of course, he never, he never really found it, but he was ambitious. Now, only about, I'd say, half of them realized their ambitions. And the others, I think, hoped that their sons in some way, their special sons, would fulfill their ambitions, but not necessarily the same ambitions. I've never really thought about it quite that thoroughly. But I, the, the thing that's perplexing to me is how, how does a parent know? How do you know instinctively, well, this is the one. We get some other children that are smarter than Grover Cleveland, but he's the one who's, he has to go to college because he's the one who has it. And as mothers as well as fathers, how do they sense that? That somehow, he's not the smartest child, but he's the one who stands out. And somehow they make that almost instinctive decision that he's the favorite child. Now be the favorite daughter as well as the favorite son. So I'm not sure I have a really good answer for that. But I don't think in any case that I can think of that the son's achievements were the fulfillment of the father's, I'm trying to think of instances, of the father's failed achievements. Because when the father failed, it generally, of course, it wasn't in politics, because they weren't really in politics. And the son's achievements ultimately were in that field that nobody thought they were going to go into, into politics. But it's an interesting question to pose. And how do these parents know instinctively that this is the one who's going to be outstanding? Of course, the Bushes were wrong. They never imagined that young George would be president, well, of anything except maybe baseball commissioner. If it wasn't for Lawton Childs beating Jeb, they, he ran. He was supposed to win Jeb in Florida, and George was supposed to lose in Texas. But fate has different ideas, I guess. There's also a story I've heard you tell that I wanted you to tell briefly as we wrap up, and that's about Coach Marv Levy of the Buffalo Bills in the 90s. Folks may remember them going to those four Super Bowls and losing all of them. I thought this was great advice for a father or mother to give to a child that maybe they aren't making that connection with. So I thought you might tell that anecdote for us. It's a great quote because you think that whole prior generation of high achievers, Jewish particularly, and when his, when his son tells him he wants to be a football coach, which is the last thing in the world he would want him to be, and he says, well, be a good one. That's a great story. It wasn't in this book, but it's a, it's a great story. Well, it's one of yours, so I give you full credit for remembering it. What I like about Marv Levy is, of course, he went up there four times and at the very end and lost four times. Kind of relates to my career. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was an excellent coach with an excellent team, and yet the ball was always kicked to the right. You know, it was always some, yep, bizarre, Scott Norwood. some bizarre thing that could prevent it, that team, one of the great teams 
in football history from winning the Super Bowl, at least one of which they should have. As a Giants fan, yes, Scott Norwood, the wide right. Something, though, he's still very positive about. He actually sells real estate in Florida now, he does, Scott Norwood. But I just thought that was great advice for a father or mother to give a child or just a great thing to say when you're trying to make that connection. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a picture of Barack Obama with his father, Barack Obama Sr. He's a junior. And I believe it's the only picture that they have. They He left the family at three. In that picture, I always think it's tragic. It's telling. And you see, or I see anyway, looking at politics today, the thread that runs through from that. Because here's this young child. He's clutching his father's hand. They're at a baggage carousel at an airport, which you can't yeah. imagine anywhere more transient. He's looking at the camera. He's just beaming and clutching his father's hand as if to say he's real, you know, because he's only had, as his biography yeah. says, dreams of his father. He's only dreamed about him. And his father is looking away in another direction. Not It's clearly not the moment to him that it is to his son. No. And no. our presidents have had many heartbreaks like that with their parents. And I wonder if there's any that are really vivid here that people pick up in cradles of power that really drove them in their later life, these things like Andrew Jackson, any of those stories that really jump out at you? Well, you know, Barack Obama only saw his father once more in his whole life. He came on a Christmas to Hawaii, where he was actually born, by the way, and he only saw him once more in his life. And towards the end, he had affectionate feelings towards him. But you're talking about some particularly tragic instance. I would say that probably, I know I've stated it before, the Theodore Roosevelt story where the father dies before his son. And he's the whole reason, I think it was cancer, terrible cancer of the bowel. I think he'd been misdiagnosed. And by the way, there's an awful lot of misdiagnosis in this book in the first hundred years. If you take the four presidents who were assassinated, two of them might well have survived if they had the kind of medicine we have today, which is neither here nor there. But his his father dies before he can even see him. And then his mother dies also before the age of 50 and, and of course, his first wife. And the combined tragedy of of that generation is really staggering. And it takes him a while to recover and, you know, have a new wife and a family and the rest. There are other instances of presidents who were very affected by their mother's death. For example, Abraham Lincoln, of course, his mother dies when he's when he's nine. And two years later, when his father has the sense to bring back Sarah Ball Lincoln, he grasps at her skirts like he doesn't want to let her go, you know, and hoping that it's not meant as disrespect to his first mother. But of course, he was haunted by death throughout his life. And if you think about it, you think about a a number of others where there's just a sudden death that changes everything. You know, probably you could debate who, which president came from the the family of the greatest affluence, but there isn't much doubt about which was from the the most destitution. That would have to be, I think, Andrew Johnson. Lincoln managed to get to a school of some kind or other about one year of his life. Johnson never went to school a single day of his life, and he only learned to read and write, as you know, when he married an extraordinarily bright woman who, in effect, taught him to read and write, and without which he would never have gotten anywhere in in politics. I think, in a way, his life was so destitute, and uh, even though his mother mother did, did live, she wasn't able to care for him. And I think that's the saddest of all presidencies in terms of personalities 
It's also interesting to say, going back to Barack Obama Sr., I saw that the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, Mm -hmm. that's up in Harlem, they came across some of Barack Obama Sr.'s papers. And you'd think that his son might want to get his hands on those right away, but he's waiting till after he's out of the presidency. And then I guess maybe he'll read them. But that's going to be an interesting sort of father from beyond to speak to him from that. I guess we'll find more of that now since we write so many things. Well, you've got to be impressed with Obama's mother, even though, you know, she's away from him for so long. You know, she she's a very romantic. She marries these, these two men, an Indonesian, a Kenyan, and she divorces them of necessity, and yet she tries to encourage her son to stay in touch with him, to keep in touch with him. And ultimately, even though he's raised by his grandparents, he thinks of his mother as, as the most important person in his life. It's the most extraordinary kind of life. And yet there's a certain bond between these very dissimilar families. We'll never have another presidential story like this you know, as, long, as long as we live. I, it's really unique. And she comes across as not only an extraordinarily accomplished person who did a great deal, but as someone very compassionate. And her Indonesian daughter has the same view of her. I didn't say I a lot of her, but she's sort of the light of their lives. We've had some really interesting presidencies. I have one final question, which goes to that future presidents that we'll see. I hope it's is it an easy question that (laughs) doesn't require much in the way of, you know, retrospective thought on my part? I think so. It's a take a little bit. We only had so many presidents, you know. (laughs) Well, I'm asking for your advice. So that's always easy to give. All right, I'll buy that. There's no wrong answer on this one. But we're, we're airing this episode just before our presidential election. And usually people ask things like, what president would you like to have dinner with? Who's your favorite? In fact, in the book, you say our excessive passion for evaluation, which I'm going to save and use because when you're reading those presidential bios, your friends ask you, oh, who's your favorite? And as you said about the parents and as you say in Cradles of Power, it's different at different times or for different reasons. So rather than ask you that question, I wanted to change that up and say for our candidates coming or any future president, if you could name one or two of these parents and have them sit down with a president to give them a little bit of advice, have that dinner with them. What two presidential parents do you think would be the best to talk to our next chief executive? Well, of course, Buchanan's, <laughs> uh, but at the same time, sorry, there's a tense of humor on my part. I, Cause he always comes in last. And I don't think it's fair. <laughs> it's not, not fair. fair. He wasn't any worse than, wasn't any worse than the, the other three guys. And he's a great lawyer. He should have stayed out of politics. Yeah. Like, okay. So you're saying what parents of a president do you think would be worth really interesting to talk to on the part of a, a of a new chief executive? Is that, yeah. Well, definitely. I don't want to just dwell on this, but definitely Roosevelt, the senior Theodore Roosevelt. I was going to say, as for a president, of course, you want to talk to Jefferson himself, as enigmatic as he could be. I think Jack Kennedy once said that when they had a group of, of very well-established people having dinner at the White House, that it was the most in, impressive group since... Jefferson dined by himself. My suggestion would be Mother McKinley, not surprisingly, there with her son as he's right before he becomes president, praying with him, Lord, keep him humble. Keep him humble. She says over and over. I think that's good advice for any president, but you may pick your own. Well, I'm I'm thinking of people who are extremely bright and who you have a real conversation with Mm -hmm. rather than people who, who just have strong views about one thing or another. It does seem to me that maybe... Franklin Roosevelt's father, believe it or not, and Franklin Roosevelt's mother 
believe it or not, even though she was very strong-willed, I call it smothering, mothering, <laughs> she had a lot of interesting ideas, and she made transitions in her life that were really remarkable. And his father, you know, so many of these presidents say, when they're talking about their parents, don't forget my father, because so many of the fathers died young, and so many of them are dominated by impressions of their mother, like Harry Truman, Nixon, and Eisenhower. I think two women who would be very interesting to talk to would be Eisenhower's mother, Ida, Ida Bell Eisenhower, who was an extraordinarily lovely person, and Truman's mother, who was very interested in politics and who really was his confidant virtually his whole life. And if you gave me another hour, <laughs> I'd come up with some more. We have plenty to talk about because we like presidents so much. It is fascinating reading, and it's a, a great way to get through history, get through and learn a little bit about America and who got to the presidency, because you might not want to pick up a book necessarily about the era that John Tyler lived, but gosh, you pick up his bio and he's a fascinating guy is on the wrong side of the Civil War as he was. He's interesting to read about. Very interesting guy. And he got his nose from his mother. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, be a good one. Uh, <laughs> well, Dr. Harold I. Gullen, author of You can Cra call me Hal. Okay, Hal. Author We're going to make that transition. <laughs> well, Hal, author of Cradles of Power. When people want to look you up to buy the book, they can just go to historyauthor.com. They don't have to worry about remembering the full name. There are many more stories that await readers inside Cradles of Power. Thank you so much for sharing a glimpse into the earliest days of our presidents. Thank you for giving me a chance to talk about them all with somebody who feels like we have the same friends. And best of luck with the book. Thank you very much, and it was certainly my pleasure. Great talking with you. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. Take care. Again, the book is Cradles of Power, the Mothers and Fathers of the American Presidents. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or navigate through the Amazon banner on our homepage for all your Amazon.com purchases. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of everything you spend at no additional cost to you. Once again, thanks so much to Hal Gullen for joining us and for giving us a peek at the 43 bouncing baby boys. And soon, whether it's 2016 or not, the woman who've grown up to be, for better or worse, our presidents. Remember, you can let us know what you think of the book and the interview or your favorite president or presidential parent on Twitter at HistoryDean or Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. And I would encourage you, if you're interested in the topic of presidents and their relationships, to check out Feather S. Foster's interview, which you can find in the archives wherever you're listening now, and visit her blog. Well, that's it for this presidential installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And I hope that the first Tuesday in November, you'll get to the polls and vote. And speaking of voting, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please give us a vote of confidence, leave us a review, and a few stars. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us to the nurseries of America's presidents, and have a great week. Do you want to ghostwrite my next book? <laughs> <laughs>